You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, Tracy. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, reflecting on this passage, but first, would you pray with me? Uh, our Lord, we do give you great thanks that you have promised by your Spirit to communicate to us through this, your Word, and we now ask that this, your living Word, would become words of life for us, especially mindful of the fact that there's some younger children in here who haven't had to sit through a sermon. Pray that you would open their minds to see Christ just as clearly as all of the adults who've sat through many sermons. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I don't, you may remember watching it. I don't know where you were, but the year was uh, 2006, and the French great Zinedine Zidane was in the World Cup. You may remember the last game versus France. Everyone's staring at me blankly, so I think I'm the only one that was watching it. Um, but seemingly out of nowhere, you remember Zidane, the captain of the French team, the game's 1-1. I think they're in like the 110th minute of the game. They're in extra time. France is out playing Italy. And Zidane does something that seems absurd. He, with extreme violence, rams his head into the chest of the Italian defender, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, behind the play, knocking him down. And Zinedine Zidane, the best player for France, receives a red card. He's kicked out of the game, and the Italians eventually win. And if you are in the Western world, uh, you heard renouncing a sort of blame heaped on Zidane for, for losing his temper, for being defeated, and for causing his team uh, to be defeated. But what's interesting is if you follow news coverage around this, and there was an interesting article about this in a book I recently read, there was an article that we're citing, though the Western world found this deplorable that Zinedine Zidane sort of headbutted this Italian player and ruined his, sort of lowered his team's chances of winning. After a while, we found out that the Italian defender had said some nasty things about Zidane's sister. And this re it resulted in him headbutting the player, knocking him down. Western media could have cared less. We still said, what lack of self-control? What absurdity, you know? Why would you do such a thing? Lose a great chance to win the World Cup. And yet the majority of the world, the non-Western world especially, did not respond this way. For them, the idea of money and fame and national prestige, they were nothing when you put them up next to the honor of your sister. And so though they were disappointed in Zidane and couldn't believe he did this, they also felt like, what else was he supposed to do? He had to protect his family honor. Now listen, in the Western world, at least in the 21st century, we conceive of identity as something that we construct, that we build, that we choose, okay? And ancestry and family are so far down the list of what is important to most of us, not all of us, but most of us. If anything, family, ancestry have become for us sort of the setting through which we have to sort of find our identity, 
They're, they're kind of the platform upon which we go out on this quest and choose and decide who we really are. But these networks that we're born into, they aren't ultimately what make us. In fact, they're kind of the shackles that hold us back that we're always trying to break out of. That's how we conceive of who we are as a people, how we understand ourselves as identity. I mean, proof of this is if you've seen the Hamilton musical and you think about it, uh, you know, we, we praise this guy for bursting through being an orphan, but we sort of don't care about the fact that he was caught up in this strange love triangle, had a nasty affair that was very public, uh, was not a good father or husband, and, um, you know, die, his son dies in a duel, and he dies in a duel unable to take care of his family, and yet, you know, we have a musical about him, and his face is still on the $10, uh, you know, U.S. bill. Loyalty to family for, for other parts of the world would, would take great precedence over the ability to create wonderful economic policy. So being a, for lack of a better word, scumbag father <laughs> would mean you probably don't deserve your face on a dollar bill. And yet our, our culture is much different. Loyalty to family, these things are different. Trudeau gets a divorce, and I, and I don't like the media sort of digging into people's personal life on politics. I get it. But this seems to be no big deal. He separates from his wife it doesn't matter as it relates to him as a politician. Who he is is different. He's crafted an identity that's sort of apart from this particular marriage. Now, why am I saying this? We stand in a world that's probably on one end of the spectrum that is completely opposite from the world of the ancient Near East, at least in this passage with which this, um, this particular verse comes. Family and ancestry was everything. It was your identity. Who your father was was of the utmost importance, and who your father's father was was incredibly important. You not only identified yourself by your father, but by the tribe that you were a part of, who in many senses was your great-great-grandfather. Your identity was about your family. This was who you were. And honoring your parents was everything. And being loyal to this family name was absolutely everything. It's almost impossible for me to overstate, and it's almost impossible for me to really understand and explain to you how important the family unit was in Jewish society. And yet, Jesus comes onto the stage here in a world where family is everything, in a world where the idea of calling nepotism a problem would have been unheard of. And he does something to the family structure. What is Jesus doing and what is he saying his kingdom is doing to what it means to be part of a family? And I want to ask that question in light of the fact that we live in a world sort of much different from the world with which Jesus enters into. So what is Jesus doing to the family, and how do we make sense of it in the present age? And I want to just look at two things. I want to look at the way that Jesus is warning us about the danger of the family, which is relevant to us in the present age. And then I want to spend some time talking about the opportunity Jesus is showing us that is available in our present age as it relates to family. So the danger and the opportunity of family, that's what I want to look at, okay? So let's start, the passage starts by looking at the danger of family. Now, let me remind you that Jesus has been in some conflict for some time now. You may be visiting our church or new to our church, but as it comes to this 12th chapter of this biography of Jesus, Jesus has been in conflict, especially with a group of people called the Pharisees. Now he finds himself at odds with someone different. It's his mother and his brothers, his family. It's interesting, we don't hear anything about his father, Joseph. This could be to protect the fact that Jesus has this mysterious birth story of this virgin conception. More than likely, though, we don't hear anything about Joseph, and it's probably likely that Joseph has passed, that he's died. And here we are, uh, it seems as though the religious establishment have gone to Jesus' mother and his brothers and said, listen, your, your brother's like starting something like a cult. He's destroying what was important to us as a people. He's going to bring God's judgment on our nation. You go talk to him. 
Now, it's not as clear in Matthew's gospel, but we have this exact same story in Mark's gospel, in the third chapter of Mark, and we, re- we read that Mary and Jesus' brothers, who were very big players in the early church, believe at this point in Jesus' ministry him to be out of his mind. And more than likely, that's what's happening here. Jesus, his brothers, and his mother come, and probably at the, at the pressure of the religious establishment, they're saying, hey, come to your senses. Are you out of your mind? You're making absurd claims. You're, you're creating enemies of the people who ought to be to you your deepest and closest. And while Jesus comes teaching, you may, if you're a child looking at the bulletin, you may wonder, was there a typo? There's no verse 47 in this passage. And this is because there's, it's not found in most of the old manuscripts. It seems, seems as though uh, the version of the Bible that we're reading here, which is the English Standard Version from the UK, it assumes verse 47 is not original. I'll read it to you, lest you think there's some conspiracy theory, some new Da Vinci code that you can unlock. Uh, verse 47 says something like, someone told him your mother and your brother are outside wanting to speak to you. If you can start a cult off of that verse, well, give it, if you can p- publish a bestseller, I'd be impressed. Um, the reason it's not found in most of the oldest manuscripts, my guess, and the guess of the scholars much smarter than me, is that both verse 46 and verse 47 end with a, a Greek verb for to speak, the exact same ending as well. And it's very likely that the scribe, uh, as they were trying to meticulously sort of repeat exactly what they see read on one um, text to another, it's likely that their eyes skip down to the second time that that verb showed up after only having written it once, and it seems more than likely that's what's gone on, but the majority of, of texts don't have verse 47. Side note, don't want that to be a distraction to you. Regardless, Jesus' family appears to him, and they seem to believe that they deserve some special attention from him. And Jesus responds, as he's teaching this crowd of people, it's like, it's like my mom bursting in the door and saying, hey, what are you doing? Jesus responds saying, who, you know, my, some, my mother and brother want me. Who is my mother and brother? Now, knowing who your mother and brother is of the utmost importance in not only just Jewish society, but really even modern-day, you know, society. Uh, knowing your mother and brother, though, in, in the nation of Israel was incredibly important because one of the great commandments was that you were to honor your father and mother, the fifth, as we would number it. In some senses, the Bible, like no other holy book, exalts the family, and the family wasn't just about survival. One of the ways you could look at it is after the first creation story where God creates a family and this first family screws up and brings curses upon the world, God begins to push and, and, and extend mercy and grace to people, and this works through families. You could say maybe that grace sort of rolls downhill, that God's mercy is passed on, that the family unit becomes a vehicle through which salvation is experienced for so many people in the life of Israel. And in fact, it's, it wouldn't be a surprise if I asked for a show of hands, I won't, but if I asked for a show of hands and said, how many of you are, are first-generation Christians, that your, your parents had no connection to Christianity? The number would be a very, very small minority. Some are, some of our, you know, our elders, some of our elders are. But for the most part, the family unit has been a vehicle through which God's promises and his goodness are passed on generation to generation. And Jesus is not here trying to destroy family. In fact, elsewhere, he's going to fight with the Pharisees because they like to twist the way scripture is used and remove obligations they have towards their family in the name of sort of manipulating scripture. And Jesus actually rebukes him for that. He, he says, you must honor your parents, and it goes even higher. It has a bigger financial burden. He's not trying to undercut and destroy family. What he's trying to do is warn you and me and warn the people who are listening to his teaching of the danger of family. 
there's a very real danger that comes to family. Jesus is saying that your love for family and your loyalty to family is good and important, but it must be ordered rightly. He created family. He wants you to honor family, but it's not everything. You're to love your family, but you're to love him and his kingdom, that your heavenly father, much, much more. The entire institution of family, maybe I could say, is meant to be a picture or an illustration that was to point to this larger family that we're a part of, this family of the people of God, the people who have a heavenly father and who become sisters and brothers one to another under their heavenly father. This sort of individual family unit was just an illustration or a picture of that, and Jesus is saying that there's a very real danger to the family. And that is that our loves can get disordered. Our loves for the picture or for the illustration can become greater than the real thing. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Let's suppose that uh, you lost your wedding ring. Let's suppose a married woman loses her wedding ring. And she's distraught, as you would be, not just because it's expensive, but because of all the memories that are tied to a wedding ring and all the promises that are sort of summed up in what, what happened when that ring went on your finger and the symbolic power of that wedding ring. Well, it's disappeared and let's suppose that this, this, um, this wife is so da- downtrodden about having lost this wedding ring that she literally bankrupts the family, sells all that they can to tear up the, the, she loses it in this school, to tear up the school to find this wedding ring. She's doing everything, calling everyone, getting the best sort of metal searching companies to find this wedding ring and can't find it. And she's so beside herself, she's now out of money, for the whole family's out of money. And she won't even talk to her husband because she's just so depressed. She sits in bed just utterly distraught that she has lost this ring. Her life is over. Her marriage is over. What would you say if you were a friend to this, this bride? You would say, I understand you're, that you're upset. The, the ring is important. It, it carries a great weight of importance. You know, when someone takes off a ring, I've said this before, but like in a bar, when you take off your wedding ring so you can talk to someone of the opposite gender, this is not good. The ring is not inconsequential. We don't just throw these things around. They, they symbolize a promise. But you're destroying the real thing, your real marriage, for the sake of finding the symbol that this was to point to. Not a perfect illustration, but this is something of what Jesus is saying about the family. He's saying there's a very, very real danger. He's given us a family so that creation might move forward, that there might be more children, that the world might be filled up with his image bearers as he wants. And he's warning us that there's a real danger that our love and loyalty to the family can begin to be disordered and become greater than our love and loyalty to the high and heavenly family that we all are to belong to as people of God, as we live rightly ordered lives to God's. Our loves can get disordered. And this is incredibly applicable. I mean, in some senses, it's, it's extremely applicable to cultures Maybe some of you come from where mom and dad think that um, they are God. <laughs> they can sort of dictate your future. They're on par with the divine. You know, I went to seminary with some individuals, some of the best students, felt called by God. Incredibly, incredibly gifted communicators, ready to learn more about God, but they just could not possibly bear the weight of the disappointment of mom and dad. Left seminary, took other jobs. Some, one of them's quite, doing quite well, quite professionally successful yet felt called to ministry and, and left. who couldn't bear the weight of disappointing mom and dad. This is a great warning to us that these loves can get disordered in such a way that can be destructive. There's a great danger to family, but there's another warning to us, and this is the great danger that we can over-obsess with, uh, sort of disorder our loves, look too highly in our local family. 
I can't be the only one who's noticed that there is something of a social trend. The longer and longer uh, society sort of moves away from and decouples its away from sort of a Judeo-Christian ethic, the more they've disappeared from this idea as a society, our city, disappeared from this idea that we maybe have a heavenly father and that we are to, in some senses, be to our father children. The more this happens, I can't help but notice people put such great weight on their parents that everyone is walking around looking for therapy for their daddy issues and mommy issues for the ways in which they're damaged by the ways their parents raised them. I can't help but think this is, this is a picture of what happens when these loves get disordered, when, when the earthly family, you're expecting divine things of your earthly parents. And so the loves get disordered in such a way that now we're all walking around thinking we have you know, issues with our family. I can't tell you how many times I have meals with people and they say, well, I, listen, I have kind of a conflicted relationship with my family. Oh, really? You know, I've never met anyone like that. I can't find a show on Netflix. Like half of them are all about family drama. I mean, what would Kim's convenience be without, you know, uh, the, the mom and the dad? The, the whole show is about how absurd they are in trying to, you know, sort of bridge this gap of this new world. You can think of many, any Wes Anderson film. It's all about family drama, right? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the more and more, and I'm, I'm not downplaying people who've been severely abused by their parents, emotionally, physically, manipulated. I mean, I'm not downplaying that. It's incredibly e evil. And it's in incredibly difficult to recover from this kind of trauma. But what I am saying is as society loses grasp that quite possibly our family love is to point to our participation in a greater family for a father who never lets us down, as society moves away from that more and more, the, the family unit has such an incredible burden now that everyone walks around thinking that they are damaged because of the way their parents parents them. L listen, the reason your parents failed you and let you down is because they're sinners just like you and you're going to do it to your kids as well, I assure you. And they're going to make movies about our parenting at the rate things are going. I'm sure they will. This is what will happen, and this is the danger, is that if you get these loves disordered, you will get stuck. You will get stuck and bogged down in the ways in which your family has treated you and wronged you, and you will be unable to come out from under that. Again, I'm not downplaying, to hear me very clearly, I'm not downplaying how difficult it is to progress from an abusive family an abusive father or mother. I'm, I, I want you to hear me that, hear that clearly. What I am saying is this. Our society has seemed to have disordered this love and had, the danger of the family is now that the family has done incredible damage to so many people. And we're walking around with our identity as people who come from damaged families. Maybe I'll just say one more thing and listen closely and we can turn the fans on if it's getting hot. It does feel like it's getting quite warm in here. Um, Lyndon, if you want to turn those fans on. One other warning that I just want to give is that this passage is telling us that it is very possible for us Make sure they're on low, though. If they're on high, they might lift off. Um, it, this passage is, is, is warning us that it is also possible for us to make an idol of our family, of our kids. And, um, you know, I'm treading on difficult ground. But I want everyone to hear this, especially in our church, because I can't tell you how many times people have visited our church, say, from a university background, are people who are unable to have kids, and they say, I just don't feel like I fit in. Everyone's so busy with their families. We're empty nesters. It's so hard to get to know people because everyone's so consumed by your, their family. Listen, Jesus is telling us to be careful, that there's a real danger to family, that it can control everything, and that our obsession with our kids can cause us to smother out all other relationships in our lives. We can so idolize uh, the ideas we have about who our kids could be and what our family unit could look like that we forget that we're part of this family, the people of God, and that we have obligations to this end. Maybe I'll illustrate it this way. I know some of you are going to send your kids off to university very soon. And let's say you send them off to Kingston, you, they, go, they go off to university in London maybe or whatever, they, they're, they're at university and it's your prayer not only that they find a church, but you would want nothing more 
than your university young child to find a family within that church to invite them to come around the table, that they could be plugged in with a family unit while they're at university. And yet, as you've raised kids here in our church, I wonder, has it been a priority for you to look out for people in our church whose parents are praying that they might get invited to a table and invite them? Or you think about, man, when, when I get old and things get tough and I'm an empty nester and it's, I just pray, I, I hope that people invite me around the table. You know, I hope that I'm, I'm, I'm at family's houses nonstop. And yet, and yet, life's so busy. So much sports, so much academic training, so many things to do, such strict routines that you can't invite anyone outside of your life stage over to your house, much less anyone, period. Listen, if you think I'm talking about you, I probably am, but I'm talking about about 50 of you, okay? Don't take it personally. I'm t- well, I'll take it a little personally, but I'm talking about my own family as well. What I'm saying is it is so possible, it's a difficult stage of life. I'm not trying to throw people under the bus, but it is so possible to idolize this stage of life, raising kids well. Listen, hear me clearly. They're going to make movies about us. They're going to talk about the ways we damage them. They're going to talk to their therapists about it. You've got to make it a priority to teach your kids that, yes, you're part of a family. Yes, you bear this last name, but you're also part of this family, this larger family of Jesus Christ. And the way you're going to have to do it is by making it a commitment just as much as sports, just as much as academic tutoring, to open up the table to others. I've made my point, and I need to continue to move on, but I hope I've successfully wounded you in the right ways. This has got to change in our church. Our church could look like a different place if those of us, especially in this busy stage of life where where literally you open up my calendar and there's something every night after school, We make hospitality a priority. We make relationships a priority with people from different parts of life if we treated them like they really are sisters and brothers to us and not just idolize all that's going on in our local family. This is the great danger of family. Our loves can get disordered. We can think that this family is the only family that we have. The Bible tells us that this family is to us important. It's essential. It's it's necessary. And yet it is to, uh, to be for us something that lifts our eyes to the greater family above and our participation in the church. You get my point. Now let's talk about the opportunity of the family, and I have to go quick. Verse 49, Jesus stretches out his hands and says to his, those people who are listening to him, those disciples, he says, verse 50, these are, these are my, those who do the will of my Father in heaven, these are my brothers and sisters and mothers. Now this is incredible because Jesus is saying this. He's saying this. Even if you marry into a royal family, you'll never have royal blood, right? You can't, you can't be added into the royal bloodstream. It just doesn't work like that. The best you can get is maybe to be married in, but still, you don't bear the royal title quite to the same degree. And Jesus is saying that this family, this family of the people of God, this family of the kingdom that he's bringing in, that there's an incredible uh, expansion that comes along with it. It's not bounded in the same way having a bloodline is bounded. The spiritual family that Jesus is creating, being his brother, being his sister, being in some senses a mother to him, as, as he describes here, that this is now something that is open to all. It's not, sort of reser- it's not sort of limited by bloodline and natural progression. Jesus isn't, uh, is saying this very, very clearly. Um, Jesus is not saying, just to be clear, though, that the way we get into this brotherhood is through obeying the will of the Father, sort of cold, you know, hard stop. Jesus didn't become a son of God by virtue of his obedience, but he was declared a son, remember, at his baptism. This is my beloved son. The way that he showed forth that he was part of the family, the way that he had his clarity around the fact that he was part of the family was through the ways he obeyed the will of the Father. And so also, Jesus is saying, those who do the will of his Father, those who are loyal to the God of Israel, loyal to the God of Israel as revealed in Jesus Christ, 
who obey and follow after Jesus, who trust in the work of Jesus and say he is my highest commitment, my highest priority, and do the will of the Father, these become, you now who believe these things become true brothers, true sisters to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think this is incredibly important because in our secular age, (laughs) our society is longing, longing for this deeper family. Something beyond the family unit that they can be a part of. Why do people join the military? Is it not because they want to be part of this sort of family, this brotherhood? That's why half of these people are down the street in CrossFit, you know? They greet, greet one another like they're family. Uh, they, they, all these sort of, sort of affinity groups have to take on the pressure of being like a family because our society is craving what the, Jesus is offering here in the good news, in the gospel. I mean, think of all the ways in which our society is going after this. We, we talk about a sisterhood in the workplace. Sororities are called sister. I don't want to be, you know, I want to be careful here, but think about the pressure we're under with identity politics to find a, an affinity group of people with which can bear the weight of this extended family that we want to be a part of. Our society is looking for and longing for, how do I find a place where I can get a taste of the family that I wish I had in an ever-expanding, sort of growing way in our society? I was going to make a joke here about Fast and the Furious and Vin Diesel always commenting about family, but I thought maybe three of you would get it. But for those three of you, continue to pay attention. Listen, David Brooks wrote an incredibly important article in The Atlantic. He wrote it on March 2020. Unfortunately, this little thing called COVID happened. I don't know if you ever heard of it. And um, in, in this article, David, David Brooks, the title of the article is something like the, the death of the nuclear family or the decline of the nuclear family. And he writes uh, of the decline of the family unit in North America. Okay, it's an incredible article. It got completely overshadowed by the pandemic. It's worth reading. I put, it, I put the quote in the front of the bulletin. He writes this. He writes, if you want to summarize the changes in the family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. The conclusion of the article is this. The blunt fact is that the nuclear family has been crumbling in slow motion for decades. And more of our other problems with education, mental health, addiction, the quality of the labor force, they all stem from that crumbling. We've left behind the nuclear family paradigm of, the ni- of 1955, and for most people in North America, it is not coming back. And then he writes this, and this is the opportunity of family. He says, yet North Americans are hungering to live in extended and forged families in ways that are both new and ancient at the same time. He ends this way. For decades, we've been eating at smaller and smaller tables with fewer and fewer kin. It's time to find ways to bring back the big tables. And what is David Brooks saying? I think he's putting his finger on what I'm trying to say to you. That if you look at the, whether, whether it be identity politics or the hobbies that are going on around our society, the, the sort of affinity groups that birth up throughout our city all throughout the week, people are hungering for something like a group of people who will be patient with them, a group of people who will say, hey, where were you? We missed you, who have a, have a chair for them at the table, a group of people who watch out for one another and treat one another with a deep loyalty. Our society is looking for a place in which people who are both you know, conservative in their political leanings and liberal in their political leanings can come together and have a place at the table. They're looking for a group of people they can be a part of when they're suffering, that someone will come in and help, that will do the hard work necessary to help someone in seasons of suffering. They're looking for people. There's almost nowhere... Nowhere in our society where someone will say, I, th- I, think, I think you're stepping out of line and will warn you 
People are craving that. They are absolutely yearning for it because they're not getting it in their nuclear family. And the extended family systems are, are, are crumbling. People are dying for a table like this, an invitation like this. And Jesus is saying, when the church gets it, when they're walking in stride with the kingdom that he ushers in, they become like this family, this family that our society is cra craving. And this, to me, is the opportunity that stands before not just our church, but all of the church, especially in the Western world today, as the family unit continues to crumble. Not just fighting hard, sort of, sort of family values protection. I think there's some merit to that. That discussion needs to have its place. But we must never forget we never forget, it is possible to have disordered loves towards the family, and there's an incredible opportunity now to be the people, to be the place that gives the, the world what they're longing for, a place at the table where there is a common sisterhood and a brotherhood around a united, around a cause, a cause that also doesn't just concern itself one with another, but concerns with those who are, who are concerned with the world outside of them, with the city outside of them that assemble together, that eats, and talk about how to be good for the people who aren't even there, how to care for a world around them. Listen, what am I trying to say? I'm going to sum it up this way. People are fading. Maybe it's because it's hot. I'll blame it on that. Maybe I got you with the first point and you tuned out. I'm trying to say this. One of the ways to sum up the story of the Bible would be it's this. The story of the Bible is the story of a father who desperately, desperately wants a big family reunion. His family is alienated from him, not because of anything he has done, but because his children have decided to go off and do their own things. And the story of the Bible is the great length the father goes to to send his oldest son to come to this world and to pay whatever debts are necessary, to pay off whatever debts are necessary, to deal with whatever is necessary, that all of his children might be brought in and they might come under the roof of the house one more time and might share a meal together again And the way that a strange family's only can long for. The story of the Bible is this story. God, our Heavenly Father, sent Jesus to be for us an elder brother. And like a true elder brother, Jesus ate the costs. He gave of his very life. That the, 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 the very thing, the debts that stand, sort of put you in an obstacle between you and having a relationship with your Creator, with your Heavenly Father, are paid for, they're atoned for, and now, and now a seat at the table is open. And the good news of the gospel is not just that you get Jesus as your elder brother and you're reconciled to your father, but you get new sisters, you get new brothers, and you get them for all eternity. This is the family of God, and this is what Jesus is telling us about. Let me close in prayer. Our Lord, we do pray that you would make us into the type of church that is a true family. We realize that nothing will reflect the family life that we experience in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, we pray that you give us glimpses for people here who feel so lonely and estranged, not only from their biological family, but really just struggle to feel connected even to our church, I pray that today would be a new day for them. They would find ways in which they could connect with sisters and brothers. And for those of us who live busy, consumed lives, I pray that you would convict us of our sins, that we would reprioritize our priorities in such a way that this extended family that you've called us into would be a priority in our schedule. We thank you for the work of Christ the ways in which he has been for us like that elder brother who pulled us up by our hands when we were down, paid all of our debts, dealt with the very thing that put us in enmity with you, brought forgiveness for our sins, and gave us a place at the table. Please, Father, make us into this type of family by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.